I would like to introduce James Vogger to Fuel the Brave. James founded IDCO in 2011 with a mission to create convenience offering new products and services for businesses and consumers alike. The IDCO builds products like DirectID and Nomo, which are based on bank data, helping firms onboard the customers quickly while gaining a fuller understanding of them. DirectID solves business pains, such as accessing a customer's affordability, verifying their account information, and offsetting credit risk. James, welcome to Fuel the Brave. The first question I've got for you, just to get started, is can you tell me about where you grew up and what your childhood memory was that makes the biggest impact on you? Wow, good one. Uh, childhood memory. So I grew up in Vancouver. Uh, so I was born in Canada. Uh, I've been over in the UK for about 23 years. So, you know, spent a few years working first and then went back to university, studied marketing and business. Um, had my first project then. So we started a direct marketing company uh, out of university uh, that we sold for not a huge amount of money, but uh, enough to let me go travel through Europe for a while and kind of brought me here. Um, and I've been in the UK ever since, originally in, in, in London, but uh, now based in Edinburgh for 22 years, I think. So, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm over that threshold now of longer in Scotland than, than, than anywhere else. Um, in terms of a childhood memory. Um, yeah, is there anything that you remember from your childhood that's maybe made a big impact on how you've turned up now, the decisions that you make, things like that? Yeah, so I'm a bit of a startup junkie. Uh, and I think in this world, you get people that live to work and work to live. There's definitely a balance there. I believe in a, a work plus life and you should always do what you you enjoy doing. Yeah. Um, startup is is a lot of, takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of you know, tenacity and, and that sort of thing. It's not uh, an easy life, let's say. Um, and I was definitely brought up with that sort of working mentality. So I think it's not necessarily one particular memory, but just just that sort of uh, impetus to get up and work and not be afraid to work and for, for work to be part of your life. My father did what he really enjoyed and, you know, it's, it's, it, it showed and I always wanted to do the same thing, right? I always wanted to, to kind of make work part of, part of my life, which is, I think, essentially why I do what I do. You have a good work ethic yourself. Yeah, I've been working full-time since I was about 15, so right. uh, I think the longest stretch is maybe two weeks I've not not worked full-time, so uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's inbuilt, I think. From my experience, a good work ethic is very important. But only, only uh, this is why the, it's, it's so important to do something you love as well, though, isn't it? I mean, yeah. you, you know, you either decide to work to live or you live to work, and, and I think everyone's got to make that choice that conscious choice of where they fit on the scale but regardless you should still enjoy what you do absolutely it's not really working it's just living on your website you refer to yourself as a startup junkie when did you know that you wanted to take the entrepreneurial path uh well at the time i don't think it was really called the entrepreneurial path uh I think it was it was probably more born from not wanting to work for other people, but liking that challenge of trying to build something and do something, create something, yeah. challenge that status quo. You know, it's, it, the time it was more of fundamental sort of belief than anything with a label. I mean, a lot of people call it entrepreneurialism or, or whatever these days, but 
Yeah, I think the project I have now is my sixth or seventh startup. So, you know, some have been successful, some have not been successful, uh, but I've enjoyed every minute of it, you know, despite the the hardships. It's it's just what I enjoy doing. You naturally feel like you have to do. Well, it's just helping people, it's creating things, it's working with fantastic teams, you know, that that whole, for me, it's that whole package. It's not just being successful, it's the journey, it's the... Yeah, almost a lifestyle choice in a lot of ways, you know, for people to be involved in a, um, a startup, whether you're the founder or not, you have to, you have to commit to it. Right. And, uh, I just love that challenge. I love that sort of process of thinking, especially when you identify that there's a problem. I love that end to end process of going, there's a problem here. I want to fix it. I think I can fix it. And then that whole iterative mindset that you have to have to try and figure out how to fix it. You know, every day yeah. is is a learning. Every day you do something slightly different. You try and improve and grow and all the rest of it. Um, and that, for me, that sort of somewhat creative process is 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 fantastic. Keeps you on your toes. You're driven by solving these problems. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, we live in a world where people just do what you've always done, and that's that's always something that that grates on me. Even even in the team that we have today, as soon as someone says, "Well, we do it that way," because I think, "Well, why?" You know, yeah. why do you always do it that way? It might be the best way to do it. Absolutely fine. But, um, you know, we now live in a world of pandemic and people living at home where just six months ago, there was that social, uh, cultural sort of pushback against virtual working, right? You know, big corporations, it was always that sort of balance of flexible working and freedom and all the rest of it. And people feeling at one level or another that they had to be in the office for whatever reason. The only thing that's changed is we can't be in the office and actually most people like it just as much or better and more people are more efficient and yeah. it's not that big of a jump, but now we're all doing it, you know? I know a lot of people working from home mm. and they've adjusted to the environment far better than they originally anticipated. Quite happy at home. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. And you have to compensate. It's a different way of working. I had a, a virtual business uh, maybe about 15 years ago or something. Um, and we had developers around the world and we ran a 24 hour development cycle. It was all, it was, it was cool in a lot of ways, you know? Um, and it's a different way of working, right? It's not, it's not the same as getting up, going into the office, commuting, having lunch break, all the rest of it. You don't have the chance to have those anecdotal conversations and overhear somebody talking about things. So you have to be maybe more concerted and, and stronger on your management and communication, it's harder to maintain such a strong culture, but you can compensate for all that in a different way. The the fundamentalism is is the shift in the the cultures around moving from the preconceptions, which is all they are, that working home doesn't work, yeah, to now it being acceptable, and and that sort of product adoption, that that sort of critical mass adoption of something I, I find fascinating. You know, you get early adopters and you get early innovators and early adopters. One is 17%, the other one's 35%. And then, you know, in, in, in the startup world, people talk about 20% adoption in a market is that critical mass because then you know one in five people knows Zoom. Now everybody knows Zoom and it's a it's a mainstay. You see that all the time. And that the end result of starting something and getting to that point where everyone's heard of it or done it, I mean, that's that's hugely rewarding. Yeah, and it's unbelievable what technology has enabled. Before we had this technology allowing remote working, if we had a pandemic then, 
a lot of companies would be in a completely different position than they are right now. It'd be nice to get out once in a while, but (laughs) other than that, it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Um, So I wanted to ask you, what are some of the biggest business challenges you've faced and how did you overcome them? Yeah, so I think every business has challenges. Um, If I look at our current project, and we started off 10 years ago talking about Actually, kind of the answer relates to what we were just talking about, I think. Um, but we started talking about, uh, talking about using bank data to help businesses onboard customers, right? Leveraging that identity and data you have with your bank account to hopefully remove some of the friction, both for the business and for the consumer, right? Essentially provide better identity checks and credit scores and all the rest of it. And that startup mentality in me says, well, it's a big problem. It's a global problem. We have a solution. Everyone's going to jump on and and take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, we raised some money. We're pretty successful on that. We built a proposition. And then five years later, we came to the realization that we were just too early for the market. The first attempt at that was um, was a consumer product. It was a digital passport where you put all this in information into one place and you can kind of control and share it and stuff. A, a lot of what GDPR and other things talk about. Uh, and that realization that we were just too, in the mar- too early in the market was was difficult, yeah. as it always is. Uh, so we pivoted. We didn't pivot in value proposition, but we pivoted in the way we tried to sell it. So we moved from a B to B to C or B to C to B uh, model down to directly a B to B to try okay. and get the traction with the bigger customers. And even then, though, there was still that apprehension around uh, using bank data differently or or using it to do these things. The end result is we've had to be involved in a building an industry around bank data that's referred to as open banking. So I've been involved in that since the since the beginning. Mm-hmm. And even in the early days of that, there was still a lot of pushback from the industry, right? Uh, the banks and other lenders fairly apprehensive about using bank data, concerns around privacy and liability and all those things. And we roll forward now 10, 11 years, and there's a whole industry you know, open banking is a global trend. Europe has PSD2, but now 17, 18 countries around the world have all launched open banking programs. And a lot of that impetus has come from the UK and to a certain extent, some of the Scottish companies here that have been campaigning for it for, for so long. But it's been interesting along the way of, you know, how do you get someone to adopt what you're doing? Yeah. Right. Everyone will always say it's a good idea, but how do you really get that commercial traction? Not uh, and not in the early stage companies, but in the in the bigger companies, right? Because that's where most B two B propositions get get their critical masses. Getting a couple big banks or big lenders, global propositions to use them, and that's been a really interesting journey. Because uh, as much as I like to think that if I have a better solution, people will adopt it, you have to understand why people won't adopt it or where the barriers and and, and stuff. Absolutely, and yeah. uh, the blockers in financial services, and it's I think the reason why financial services is so uh, challenged in terms of innovating itself is that they're, they're trust organizations built on protection and trust and management of data and money and, and, and risk mitigation essentially. Right. So there, there is, it's actually a whole industry that does what it always done because that's the safest thing to do. And what we're actually asking it to do is do something different. Yeah. Right. It's kind of, 
I think one of the, the easiest analogies recently is, is, has been that sort of vegan burger thing, right? You know, where nobody wanted to eat a vegan burger until it becomes mainstay and then everyone eats a vegan burger, right? Now you can go to Burger King and eat a burger that tastes like meat, but not tastes yeah. not made of meat. I know exactly. But at some yeah. point there was that critical mass, that sort of thinking changed where now it was acceptable. The previous day it wasn't. So we've, we've had to help build a bit of an industry around what we do in order to get people to adopt and de-risk them using us to help them make a better experience and, and, and a better process. Okay. If that ramble makes sense, because, you know, it is, it is sort of a convoluted thing, but it's that realizing that people, you know, the, some of the gatekeepers involved are, uh, feel that maybe they, their job is on the line if they do something different and it doesn't work or, there's a risk of perceived risk there of kind of stretching too far into new territory or whatever. Uh, I think as the analogy goes, no, no one gets fired for buying IBM, right? It's that sort of, we'll keep doing what we've always done because it's safe, even though it's not necessarily helping. So do you see open banking, is it developing at a good rate? Yeah. Uh, well, it's now a global trend, you know, I mean, just to, to think five years ago, even that, 17, 18 countries will have jumped on the bandwagon or, or have open banking programs or talking about it and, and doing things would be pretty, pretty far-fetched, you know? Yeah. Um, in addition to Europe, I mean, there's, there's all of Europe plus 17, 18 other countries. Um, it's just a very long process, you know, it's like anything. And sometimes, especially in this rapidly involving world where I think sometimes our expectations are, are very high. But if you look at something like open banking and you relate it to contactless or credit cards or internet banking or any other challenge that uh, uh, the financial industries had, any opening of a new channel or anything else like that, it is a long process because it's not just developing it. It's also that adoption cycle that has to happen. Yeah, Contactless has been, what, five years? Now it's starting to get some real momentum and now it's taking over chip and pin at least for a lot of basic transactions the limits are starting to go up it's really starting to get that familiarity now um with people but you know for the first four years it was still awkward you know it's about getting people on board changing their perception and getting to the point where the technology is adopted and I'm, I'm a big fan of like first principles and root cause and, and really trying to understand why it is that someone wants to do something. Chip and pin for me or contactless for me was a, is a great example and, and highlights, I think, a mistake that we made early on. I mean, being in the identity and, and data space, we talk about security and privacy a lot. But actually, as consumers, we're not motivated by those things. As much as as an industry, we want it to, as much as people are concerned about it, that doesn't change behaviors, right? And to, to, to get some adoption going, you have to actually change the behavior, not offer a benefit. And, and what, what motivates consumers is, I think, only one thing, and that's convenience, right? We will do a lot for convenience. Contactless is a great example of how, uh, I, and I thought this was hilarious for most of the sort of first three years, the big pioneer of contacts, obviously, was, was Starbucks, right? Yeah. And uh, I found this myself as I would go into Starbucks, I would use my, my card, I would do the, you know, order my coffee, do the chip, and then, you know, do the contactless thing and then stand there. And uh, I'd always be surprised at how much I liked doing it, but how little it changed my experience. Yeah, I know what you mean. Because by that time, 
you've already ordered your coffee, they're making your coffee, say it takes a minute to make your coffee. You're saving yourself four or five buttons on a pad, <laughs> stepping aside, and then still waiting for the same a minute. So the convenience overall wasn't the same, but that psychologically that sort of moment of tapping your card and going bing and saving yourself five buttons is delightful, right? There's that sort of psychology with it that, that I think drove people to adopt it. And, and that sort of the experience, the gamification, the sort of instant reward, even though the coffee still took just as long to make as it ever did do. And with things like the pandemic and COVID, I mean, this is, we talked about Zoom a minute ago and, and that sort of thing, but it's, it's these sorts of drivers that kind of really accelerate the adoption of some of these things because it does start to shake the status quo. Yeah. You know, organizations that have pushed back on electronic signatures and DocuSign all of a sudden now are embracing it because there just isn't an option, right? The, you, you have to be digital, so... But, but what I find interesting is what was stopping them before. It wasn't anything legal or technology or anything else. It's just a cultural issue. And a lot of these adoption issues are around the experience, the culture, the, the convenience, the things that the, the consumer has to go through or people have to go through in order to interact with them. What characteristics are most important for startup leaders? So what characteristics are uh, for startup leaders? Um, I think one of the biggest things is, is tenacity. I mean, at the end of the day, well, I think to start with, you have to be interested and passionate about what you do. But I think a big part of that for me is, is having the tenacity or the, the, the commitment to follow it through because it isn't an easy job. And I think a lot of times, you know, uh, media and education and stuff sometimes uh, oversimplifies the sort of startup, the entrepreneurial journey. Both, it's, it's nothing new, right? I mean, people have been starting businesses for a long time. We just have labeled it and started to educate and provide resources around it and stuff, which is all fantastic. Um, but the reality is, is still the vast majority of us fail, right? I mean, 90% of the time, the startup is going to fail. And to make it not fail, I think you have to have that sort of dedication, that tenacity, that energy to follow it through. Because it is a pretty lonely job most of the time, especially if you don't have a co-founder or, or something. Uh, takes a lot of energy. But it's also, uh, you have to be very open to that iterative approach, I think, and always learning and trying to understand, having that thick skin around taking the, the negative feedback. Um, yeah, yeah. I think as an industry, we still we still uh, placate people too much sometimes. You know, it's always it's always easy to be nice about an idea. It's much harder to be critical, but actually as startup people, that's, that's what we need. I want to, Absolutely. I don't want to know why you like it. I want to know why you don't like it. Right. And, and that's part of the conversation that doesn't happen as much, but that's the part that's needed. It's just a difficult part of the conversation to have because I don't want to really hear it and you don't want to really say it. So, you know, uh, I need that thick skin. You need that, that candidness and that confidence and, you know, communication needs to be there to happen. Yeah, and it's great to get that out there at the start before you start to really heavily invest in something. That's, I don't want to spend two years, six months, 10 years of my life doing something that's doomed to fail anyways, right? So while I might be passionate about something, I have a lot of energy, what I need to do is to think about the negativity, right? I think I need to understand why you wouldn't want it. What, what would stop you from doing it? That's yeah. the part of the conversation I really, really need to have. 
a lot of that stuff, the, the, the energy, the tenacity, the, the, the dedication towards it, the commitment towards it, making it part of your lifestyle, and then that constant iteration and uh, cycling of ideas, that lean, agile approach and, and embracing that is, is all things that, that you need to do. It's, but that's a lot like anything. I mean, you could be a, a, a professional sports person. You could, you know, Olympics or, or football or whatever. It's the same thing. If you want to be the best at what you do, you have to constantly iterate and challenge yourself and, and try and do things better even if it's just slightly better each time you do it. Yeah. When you're looking for that critical feedback, is it your team that you're relying on for that? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's, I think, generally pretty difficult to get, especially um, I find it a little bit easier in North America because there's a, a more directness and culture that, that is a little bit easier and a, a bit more critical thinking maybe. Um, and then, but it is difficult, right? I think half of it is how you ask the question or even asking the question. Um, and it's about looking at all, all sides of the coin. It's not just internally or externally, but it's, it's everybody, you know, yeah. um, cause everyone's got their slightly different perspective. You know, people within the team might understand the market or the industry or what you're trying to do better. People get caught up in the startup, right? We want, we want to be successful. We want to do something great. We want to, we, we want to be proud. Right. And Sometimes it is difficult to have those those really harsh conversations, but you need to internally, right? Well, emotion uh, behind this. Yeah, exactly, right. And the same thing externally. It's hard for me to, you know, sit here right now, going, "Yeah, direct ID is going to change the world. Why wouldn't you use it, right?" And no, tell me why. What would you know? And really, to come to, it's it's difficult to do that. But you just have to look for every opportunity. Always looking for feedback. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, and that's part of the 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 iterative cycle is that feedback loop. Mm. so yeah. i tend to be a very iterative person after this i'll go away and think how could i have said something different or better or acted differently every time we develop a feature or product i'm always thinking how could we do that better next time you know and that that is about doing something seeing the results measuring it getting the feedback and then putting that into the next loop right where do you see the company in five years from now uh, five years. I hate that question. Five years <laughs> is too far. Um, maybe two years from now. Okay. Yeah. I think fine. with open banking, yeah, it's a, a little bit more short term than that. Um, yeah, two years. Well, there's such an explosion, especially with COVID, around bank data and open banking. Uh, and while it's horrible for for much of the world. It's had a really positive impact on the business. I think for a lot of the reasons why we talked about, um, it's uh, it's it's really starting to get that momentum now where people are 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 not just sticking with the status quo and going for it. So for me, I'd like to keep going down that path. Yeah, um, we have a a huge opportunity. I think as as a as a business to really make some fundamental benefit, some impact into the world. Right. So helping people get credit when they couldn't have had credit before, um, helping to streamline some of the processes. If you could get a mortgage in 30 seconds, that would be great. If you get a mortgage without going into the branch and sharing bank statements, that's great. If you're a recent grad from, from university and you've got your first big paying job, how do you get a credit card or a car loan without any historical credit reference? You move countries, how do you, you know, when I first moved over here, it took a couple of years to get a bank account and everything because I just wasn't known in the UK. Yeah. There's huge, huge benefits. For me, it's just about 
continuing that process. And we've got a long roadmap of things we want to do and 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 build and that sort of thing. But it's yeah, it's about it's about doing that for us, but continuing to carry that open banking flag and really showing the rest of the world that all the work that the UK and Europe and these other countries are doing around opening up access to allow me to share my bank data and benefit from that, that there's value there, right? So we're only one of a bunch of fintechs that are trying to use that data to make a difference. Absolutely, we want to benefit ourselves, but moreover, I want to see the industry that we now live in really succeed, right? And give consumers, give people back control of their data, especially their financial data, and let them benefit from it, you know, use that to make 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 better experiences. Entrepreneurship can be a tough road. In tough moments, how do you stay focused on moving forward and making progress? Uh, that, that, again, is a, a challenge sometimes. Um, how do I do it? I, I try to take moments. I'm really bad for this. You know, I, I tend to to work a fair bit. I enjoy working. It's part of part of my lifestyle. You know, so it's all integrated. I don't really have a non-work and work life. It's all kind of grouped together. Um, and especially when things are busy and you're traveling a lot and all the rest of it, I think it's about taking those moments though. I think it's not just me. It's more, most of the founders I know, um, I think would say the same thing. You can get caught up in everything and you just need to t- take time to to have perspective, whether that's meditation, mindfulness, walking down the street, I don't know, having a long shower. It could be anything, but it's just taking those moments to to slow down, take a couple feet steps back and uh, and just kind of reflect on 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 what it is you're doing because it is it is a job that is so intensive or a career or a choice lifestyle choice that's so intensive that you can get blindsided, right? You can get blinkered on with all the pressures and activity and challenges and priorities about doing the next thing. And and sometimes you need to have that moment of just stepping away from everything and going, okay, <laughs> what is it we're doing here? And what do I, what do I need to do? How big a part of your life is meditation? Uh, I, I don't tend to do, I do a little bit of meditation. I, I believe in it. Uh, yeah. I've done a lot of it in the, in the past. Um, I tend to, to walk more than anything these days, especially when I'm traveling. I tend to go for a long walk in the evening or if we've done a conference or been speaking or something like that. For me, that's the sort of it's quiet time, right? It's just time for your your, your brain to process things. Um, yeah, for me, it's cooking. I mean, I'm a big foodie. I love cooking. That moment of cooking and being being connected with that, that's my moment of meditation is... is uh, spending a, an hour or two in the kitchen. glass of wine helps as well, but yeah, yeah. It is important to relax. Have you tried yoga? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do that uh, once or twice a week. I, I do a bit of yoga. And it's, it's again, anything. You know, it's a, it's a balance of life, isn't it? It's We're stuck in chairs. We're in meetings, conferences, running around, all the rest of it. It's it's about having that balance and taking those moments mentally, but also physically just to kind of relax and reset and, yeah. and, you know, healthy body, healthy mind and all the other, other, other stuff. Right. Absolutely. How far do you walk usually when you're, when you're going for a walk to clear your mind? Um, well, today I think it's half an hour in today's world that, uh, no, I mean, for me, I can walk for, for ages. Uh, I can do, an hour or two quite easily. Uh, so you can exercise as well? 
Yeah, exactly, exactly. Do you have a role model or mentor who has impacted your life? Yeah, um, lots over the years. Uh, I think right from university, I was telling uh, telling someone about this the other day, and one of my university professors uh, was really close to a group of us going through a, a marketing and business program, and uh, his name was Dave. Um, and I think he he had a real impact on a lot of us. A lot a lot of us have gone forward and and done businesses or or, or something. Um, he made a, a big big impact right from the beginning. So I think that was part of it, but constantly looking for for mentors and not just people to look up to as they've done it before, but people that are doing it as well. You know, it's it's hugely beneficial to get together sometimes with a, a few other CEOs or startup or founders and actually just share experiences and, and share knowledge because we all have a different take. We all understand a different component of it. Um, Today, I probably rely on a couple of people on our board really well. Our chairman's fantastic. Um, again, looking for people that are able to give you that critical feedback in a way that they know you can hear it and listen and, and, and take it on board is a really big thing, but also people that have had a certain amount of experience doing that, that sort of thing before um, and have been through the journey. So we're, we're really, I'm, I'm really fortunate. I've got a, a couple of fantastic people um, that I rely on on them mostly weekly basis almost yeah it's great to have that uh but there's also people you know you build up a network and you have groups of people there's a, a bunch of peers that uh, uh that we tend to call each other and and get together once in a while or have a call and just kind of share experiences dave who you mentioned was one of your early mentors what do you think he gave you that helped I think there's just a, a bit of perspective and experience that you can start a business and be successful. The things that are required to be successful, I think were embedded early on, you know, the importance of revenue and that sort of thing. It's always great to build something exciting, but uh, money makes the world go round, right? So you have to, you know, focus on revenue and that sort of thing. Uh, uh, I think a bunch of confidence with it as well to go, you know, it was a very practical course. So there was a lot of, uh, uh, it wasn't very theory-based. A lot of it was practical. A lot of it was case study and, and, and really understanding why things had happened within businesses and, and markets and that sort of thing. So it wasn't a typical MBA type uh, theoretical program. It's a lot of real sort of gritty stuff. Very practical. And, uh, practical and just that, yeah, that, that overall confidence to, to, to understand that most of it's going to fail. So just learn and enjoy it. And, you know, the, the adage goes, it's okay to fail, just fail quickly. Right. So, and learn from it, you know, a lot of, yeah, a lot of his experiences was, was like that. So I think it's why I've adopted that, that iterative sort of mindset with a lot of these things. And, and it kind of stemmed from, from that. Give me an example of a time you were brave and did something outside of your comfort zone. So something something I've done that is is required a bit of bravery. I think it's it's everything. Um, everything from getting up into a front of a, a, a big audience, um, not the most comfortable public speaking in 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 a big group of people. I tend to be more comfortable in a small group. Um, I mean, stuff like that where you've got 2,000 people sitting in front of you is, is, can be pretty nerve-wracking, right, for anybody. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've beaten myself up a lot about the years around, 
around that sort of public speaking. But you just have to realize it's the 10,000 hour rule. You know, like a lot of these things, we, we aspire to be a certain way because that's the way we read or see people. And we don't realize that they've just been doing it for the 10,000 hours, right? We look at Bill Gates or Steve Jobs or something like that and go, they were great leaders. They were fantastic. Look at their public speaking. They're so confident, da, 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 da. But they just spent most of their life doing it. So a good friend of mine uh, turned around uh, early days in this project. And uh, I, I was talking about this. And he said, yeah, no, it's just the 10,000 hour rule. Don't be silly. Just keep practicing. Um, I think that... Uh, and and so many experiences along the way, everything requires a bit of bravery, yeah, yeah. right? It's it's a bit of bravery to realize that you don't always know the right answer, that you might have gotten it wrong. There's that all just as we've been talking about. There's getting up and talking about in front of in front of other people. There's uh, committing time and money and and energy at something. You know, all of it requires a, a good bit of bravery. I don't know if there was for me any any one thing or any any sort of specific moment. It's just a roller coaster ride of a lot of them. A lot of micro experiences. Part of being an entrepreneur as well, isn't it? I think so, yeah. And 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 this is why I don't think uh my personal view is it's hard to teach entrepreneurship, right? It's it's not a, a set of books that you can kind of pick up and just do. You have to be inclined that way. You have to want it as part of that lifestyle. You have to be willing to take that risk. You have to uh, embrace that process, especially if you go after funding. Uh, I, I've always, or most of my projects, have always bootstrapped, and I'm a much, uh, a much bigger fan of bootstrapping because when you get on that funding train, you know obligations, expectations, all just get exploded, right? There's, there's, you have to return the money. It's not, it's not free, right? Yeah, um, and. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. What are some of the mistakes you wish you could have avoided? A lot of the learnings along the way have, have been reflective of mistakes. Um, I think I, I probably should have focused a little bit more on really understanding that consumer behavior. I thought by changing, creating something easier and faster and quicker, why wouldn't you do it? And it took a long, to, long, a long time. To, to really drill down into what was stopping the the adoption of what it is we were doing. And yeah, so that was probably the mi- biggest mistake along the way. Um, we were probably 10 years too early for the market. So we were a fintech before fintech and open banking before open banking and all these other things. And everything's great in hindsight. So I guess the question is, do you regret it or do you have any... Um, uh, regrets or, or whatever absolutely not i mean at the time it seemed right lots of support like i said we raised some funding and everything fairly quickly it seemed it seemed right but uh the reality was when you kind of peel back that onion the thing that was you know causing the problem was much more uh, intuitive and uh, embedded within an industry than we realized but i think the industry's grown up around it as well you know banks are now trying to innovate where 10 years ago they they were pretty pretty stuck in their ways, right? It'd be good because you've actually seen the full development of the industry as you've been waiting for it to catch up with you. Yeah, it's just a long time to wait though, isn't it? 10 years, you know, it's a lot of gray hair. It's, a, a, you know, more funding. It's a, a lot of challenge and heartache and, and stuff. So it's, uh, but that's, that's also a realization that most big successful companies, 
don't do it in three years. You know, it's it's a ten to fifteen year cycle in this in the startup world. Very few businesses. I mean, we're talking fractions of percentage or basis points um, actually go from nothing to big in three to five years. Most of the time, is five, ten, fifteen years. So, and that's why I think it has to. You have to have that tenacity and and you have to have that dedication. Um, and and you have to make it part of your lifestyle because it is you have to assume it's going to take 10 15 years absolutely i've noticed people looking for instant success and getting frustrated when it doesn't happen i think the media and everything around silicon valley startup world entrepreneurship um you know i mean once in a while you do see a startup that does come along that is at the right place at the right time. So it's always timing is everything and, and, and doing something new in startup world, yeah. right? And that was, like I said, our lesson. But really sort of, yeah, just, just understanding that 99.9% of the times it's a long journey that you're going to take, right? And not expecting to have it perfect right from the beginning. Again, it goes back to understanding what's wrong versus what right. You know, it's it's trying to de-risk that and and get as much knowledge along the way and make it a journey because it's never overnight yeah you have to go in it for the journey and not just go in it for just for the end result absolutely that's why it's a lifestyle right i mean i love what i do i absolutely do i don't yeah i could do other things i could get a job i could do whatever but actually what gets me up in the morning is doing what i do right and um and being part of that journey, yeah. you know, and 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 experience uh, and embracing it, right? Because it is going to take. Well, hopefully, we're between the ten and fifteen year window, so maybe maybe now now is the time. But uh, yeah, I can't think of many businesses of the thousands and thousands that I've ever seen or come across that have been successful within three years. How do you handle adversity or doubt? Um, adversity or doubt, how do I handle adversity or doubt? Uh, well, I think naturally I'm a fairly optimistic guy, right? I tend to view the world always glass full, half full, uh, and, and be pretty positive about things. Uh, I try to be less positive and more constructive. I think with a bit of experience, it's easy to be, you know, get excited and look for, for the things. Um, but you just have to have a belief in what you're doing. I don't think there's any easy answer there. Uh, it all gets wrapped up into the, the same sort of um, psychology and the, the sort of mindset that you have to have with these things. You have to have that tenacity again and, and thick skin for it, right? Because it's not an easy job. The reality is not just it's going to take 10 years, but uh, it's also a very lonely job, you know? Uh, unfortunately, when you look at the the stats and stuff in the states, for example, there's a lot of suicides that come along with being in the startup in a high pressure environment and 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 that sort of journey that people go on, um, because there is a lot of pressure and and there isn't always the support um, network that you get in in some of the other other areas of life that you that you have. So. You just have to keep trucking on. The mindset is so important, isn't it? When you're an yep. entrepreneur, just to get that mindset right so that you can stay focused and, and just keep pushing forward. And I think we talked about it a minute ago. It was is the balance as well. It's whether it's meditation or yoga or whatever, it's it's not getting too wrapped up in the one thing, is having a bit of perspective and taking moments, even if they're just fleeting moments, taking moments to 
uh, a lot of other people I know they they go for a lot of people are running runners because you can you can run anywhere it doesn't matter what city you're in you can always go for a run so that's what they do um, others are doing yoga for me is cooking and a bit of yoga and a bit of that sort of thing yeah you have to kind of just have a bit of a look for balance where you can get it what do you look for in an employee what do I look for in employees is um, is probably more passion over skills or knowledge because I think you can always you can always try to learn something right you don't always need to know it so definitely that and sort of natural aptitude I think it's um it's always incredible we were talking about this in the team just a couple of days ago uh, and uh, it's always incredible when regardless of what industry or what people do skill set or whatever when you get people that are naturally attuned to doing that that yeah. one thing you know it's it's you, you know you could see a i don't know uh an olympic medalist and you see them run and you just think they're they're built to run i mean that's what they do is they they run or you see somebody in a kitchen and they're just into a pastry i could i, I can't do pastries i love to cook but i'm not a pastry guy i'm a savory guy right people pastry chefs you see them work and it's just amazing, right? So always trying to look for people, look for people that, that are interested and that have passion, that are willing to take up a bit of the startup journey because it's not a nine to five, Monday to Friday thing, right? It's It takes more energy than that. You don't necessarily have to work more than that, but you have to embrace it more than that, right? And And we talk about it internally, it's not just a live to work or work to live, but it's a live plus work. Right. It's where there's you're sitting in the middle of the two. And that for that, I think you need to have a bit of passion about something. Ideally, the industry we're in or or the challenge that we're trying to solve. But also a sort of natural aptitude towards doing doing that thing. Um, and being involved in a team of people that are like that is incredible. Absolutely. You know, it's the is the is is one of the best things in the world where you can, you know, go through that creative process, create challenge, do execute because we're all enjoying doing it. Do you think you can spot that in someone quite early on if they've got that aptitude? Uh, sometimes it's easier than others. Uh, I think passion is probably easier than aptitude. Um, but yes, a lot of times I think you can you, you can identify it. Not always, but a lot of times. Some people just have a natural aptitude for, for that one thing and they just excel at it. And it's interesting to see it as well. Yeah. So you see someone, I don't know, kick a ball or whatever. Sometimes they could just put an effort in to kick the ball and other times and, and look like they're, they've got an aptitude towards it. Right. Other times people, you just, yeah, look at that. You know, I mean, it's just natural. Right. And, and it's that naturalness that I, I really admire yeah. in people, people that can do something naturally. How do you manage work-life balance? No, uh, for me, there isn't really a balance. It's all just mushed up together. Um, and at different phases, I mean, there's a bit of a more balance on one thing or the other. But uh, yeah, I think it's a life plus work, not a work to live or work live to work. It's it's where they, they come together for me. So, you know, I enjoy normally being out and meeting people, talking to people and being engaged in an industry or, or challenges around things. Um, uh, I, I 
tend to get stir crazy pretty quickly. So, you know, if I don't have a hundred things on, I'm not spinning a lot of plates. I feel like I'm not doing enough. I like to operate in that edge of chaos as much as possible, you know, organized chaos or whatever you want to want to call it. Um, and that's, you know, part of what I think you, you just need to do to, to, to give yourself as much chance of success as possible. But at the same time, as we've been talking about, you just have to, to not overdo it. You know, burnout can be a really um, rough experience for a lot of people in any industry doing anything. But this is, this is just like everything else. It, it, it's no different. And my final question, your house is on fire. Someone is stuck inside. What do you do? Probably go in and get them. Yeah? No? Whatever you think. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it's... Uh, so I, yeah, I think naturally I would probably just try and do everything I could to go in there if uh, until until I was burnt bad enough that I couldn't do it anymore. But it's it's... Yeah, it's a uh, it's part of that sort of relentless pursuit of of doing something. I think for me is yeah, I would would uh, I think morally never be able to live with myself if I didn't do everything I could to try and save that person. So I don't think consciously I would have a choice. I would just do it. That was my last question, James. It's been a cool. pleasure to hear your story and to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. It's been great.